Okay, uh, let's jump into the book of James, why don't we? Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we will get started. Father, thank you for tonight. Um, I love, love, love opening the Word of God. And Father, whether we've been close to you or far from you this past week, whether we've been uh, encouraged by others or maybe discouraged by others, I don't believe anyone here tonight, God, is here um, by coincidence. I think there's something that each one of these seats that people are in They need to hear from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we're just trusting you tonight. Uh, We're trusting that your word would prove to be faithful. It has time and time again, that it would prove to be profitable for all kinds of things. And maybe I'm here tonight and I need to be taught. Maybe I need to be rebuked. Maybe I need to be uh, encouraged. Maybe I need to be convicted. And so, God, we will trust you to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to James chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind. And let's go ahead and jump back into James Uh, You'll recall uh, last week we focused on this issue of wisdom and James talked about the idea of if I'm in a situation that I would consider a trial, if something from external has invaded my life, finances or health issues or relationship issues, it's a trial in my life and that trial produces faith or tests my faith and that testing of my faith produces endurance or perseverance or or patience, and that patience makes me a whole and complete person. And so we were looking at this issue last week of wisdom, and how do I get wisdom, and then I should consider it all joy when I do get it. But if I, ha- if I don't have wisdom, James says in chapter 5, then ask God for wisdom. And we defined wisdom, and, and we really landed last, uh, last week on this issue of trusting in God for something that, that I really, uh, it's out of my control. And James clearly says, if you look at verse 5, if he says, Ask God who gives to all men generously without reproach, will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of a sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so in verses 6 to 8, James is kind of unpacking this idea that if you're going to ask God for wisdom, you really need to believe that he's going to give it to you. And I think we concluded last week that we all need wisdom to get through the trial, to make the right decisions in the trial. Faith, we said, was this issue of being a settled trust and confidence. And I love that definition, a settled trust and confidence in God based on his character and promises revealed in Scripture. It's, it's going to God saying, I, I don't know the outcome, but by faith I'm asking you for wisdom, and it's a, it's a done deal. It's settled. And I trust in that. I'm confident in that. I can put that to rest. And so we kind of left off right there. And, and really, faith is what's at play here. How do we, how do we get more faith? How do we, how, when you see a person that uh, you say, well, that's a man or woman of great faith, What characteristics do they have in them that allow us to say, yeah, my neighbor or my mom or my wife or my kid, but but, boy, they have great faith. When we say that, what are we saying about them? Maybe a couple things are um, that they really do believe what they say, that they really do trust in God and they have put it aside. I know a particular friend of mine and they will say, Uh, You know, this is the situation and this is the trial and I'm just trusting God for this. And they almost say it, um, I want to say almost childishly, if that's even a word. Like I hear them say that 
And then they put it away and move on to something else. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. no, really, it's, it really is a big deal. And they say, yeah, I know, I know. I, we've already prayed about it, and I'm trusting God, and we've already prayed about it, and I don't, we don't need to dwell on it. No, 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 but you, you understand how important this is. If it goes south, these are the ramifications. If, if, we, if we make a bad decision here, we're, we're going to affect a lot of people. Yeah, I know, I've prayed about it. And God is good, and I'm trusting in his will to be done, and they move on. And that's a person of great faith. Most of us struggle with that. It's a settled confidence. And James is saying if you lack wisdom, then use that faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, to trust in God for great things to happen. And great meaning it's going to be God's will, not mine. Let me just make one more point before we move on, because I do want to get to a few other things tonight. When we ask God for wisdom in our trials, wisdom and sin don't mix well. Okay, wisdom and sin don't mix well. In fact, take your Bibles, just flip back to the Old Testament. Uh, Let's go to Proverbs 3 real quick. Take your Bibles, let's go to Proverbs 3 real quick. Kind of, I guess, help me understand or, or... This passage helps me understand this idea of of, uh, sin and wisdom not really going well together. Proverbs chapter 3, unbelievably familiar verse. You've read it, I've read it, I'm sure, many times. And Solomon says this, he says... Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's, and that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about having a settled confidence in God. And Solomon backs this up and he says, well, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own wisdom. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Listen to this. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, I don't want us to miss the point before we move on. And guys, that's this. If I'm going to trust God for the wisdom to get me through this trial and on the outside, on the other end, I will end up a more mature, complete person. I have a responsibility as well while I'm in the trial. And that is I am to trust God with my entire heart. What's the implication? If I'm trusting God with my entire heart, what's the implication? Where is my entire heart? It's trusting God. Which means that there's no room, there's no, there's no availability for my heart to lead me down a path of sin. I was teaching my high school students today. We're talking about a theology of worship. What, is, what does it mean to be intimate with God? And so there's an acronym for theology of worship. And one of the, one of the letters, I believe it was O, means I need to be open before God. That was, no, T-H-E-O-L. Yeah, the second O there was, um, I need to be obedient. And I said, guys, the, the point with that is, you have a part to play when you worship God. When I trust in God, when I demonstrate my faith in God, when I'm praying to Him for wisdom, I have a part to play in that, God says. And my part, your part, is obedience. And sometimes I think we miss that. Sometimes I think we live in sin, right? So we're just muddling around in sin and then a trial comes and we say, oh, I need wisdom, God. So, so I'm not going to stop doing this, but God, I need you to give, I, I tell my students this, listen, if, if I give a test tomorrow and you choose not to study because you're lazy 
And it's the, the, day, the, the minute you walk in before the test, you pray to God for a good score. I don't know much, but I know this. He's not answering that prayer. He's not. See, I'm, I'm being disobedient, God, and I'm living in sin, God, and I'm living in sin. Oh, by the way, I'm experiencing a trial now. God, give me the wisdom I need. And God's saying, you're not even come, I'm come close to giving you wisdom. But rather, often what God does, and maybe you've experienced this, is I'm going to let you wallow in this for a little while. Until you come to a point where you come to a church service. Our, our Pastor Lynn, you know, when he's doing the dating series, right? And, and you know, I love Pastor Lynn because he's, he's effective in calling us out. And that was his point, right? When we're dating, if you're living in sin when you're dating, and then you seek God for wisdom, you're not getting it. So, so he got real practical right that day and said, get out of sin. And guys, I've got to tell you something. People respond, which is exciting. This stuff isn't just theory. People have responded to God. And they've said, I'm going to take you up on your word. I've heard from several people in the mind that have come to me and said, I've got to tell you something. This is what happened three months ago, two months ago, four months ago. In sin, got out of sin, and I'm finding life to be better. Like, you know, God's saying that that's the pattern here. You, if you're going to trust me with all of your heart, and then in verse 7, he says, don't be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If you're seeking wisdom for something tonight, guys, you have to do this part on your own. You have to repent and confess and get right vertically with God before you can find wisdom to make the right decisions horizontally with others. It's just, that's the way the Bible time and time again tells us. That's the pattern. That's the equation. And we try to find loopholes and we try to find, you know, end arounds. And so I want to stay in my sin and live in my sin and deal with my sin. And then all of a sudden, God, I need, I need your wisdom now. And God's saying, check back with me. It's not going to come. It's not going to come for me. And so if you're living in sin and then you reach a conclusion of peace about something, I can guarantee you this. It's not from God. Because God doesn't deal. He doesn't bless the sinner. Because if he did, I'm first in line then to continue living in sin and can continue being blessed by God and receiving wisdom. Why not stop? Why not stop sinning? I'm going to continue to sin. And God says, that's not the pattern. The pattern is to repent and get right with me, live obedient. And when you're living in obedience, seek me with all your heart as the deer pants for the water. Let your soul long after me. I will dump wisdom on you like you can't believe. I mentioned something last week too when I told you I, I postponed my engagement. I told you this and I wanted to be clear on this as well. Um, I, I did. I received an incredible... Because we talked about, well, how do you know if you get wisdom, right? We, we concluded with, well, there's a peace you have. Albeit subjective, but there is a peace. And, and I fully believe that. I fully believe in that particular decision, there was a peace. And, and, I, and I failed to mention two things. One, um, that Jennifer was um, phenomenally receptive. And you can imagine, those of you who have been engaged, maybe you've had a similar experience, how tempting it is to just fly off the handle and become a wreck and, and, and just do all kinds of crazy things. And, and she embraced uh, the idea with a grace and, and, a, and an, an attitude really that, that I couldn't have even begun to expect. But I've come to appreciate fully 
a very, very godly woman. I was super, super impressed by that and, and, and to this day very appreciative. But I also need to say this. I think, guys, when God is moving in your life and you are out of sin, so that's not an issue, but you are seeking him with all of your heart and you are seeking wisdom, I want to be clear as well. I don't think it always has to be a peaceful feeling. I think God can give you a, a spirit of unrest until you move on a decision he wants you to move on. Uh, You know, maybe it's this relationship and I have to mend this relationship. And God, through conviction, may say, I'm going to keep pricking at you every day until you fix this relationship. I'm not going to give you a piece about moving on in this relationship until you've dealt with this relationship. So I think it can go both ways. I don't want us to believe that I just, if I don't have a peace and I'm at unrest, then, then I don't need to move here yet till I get peace. It really does depend on the situation. Maybe God is keeping you at unrest because he's saying, I want you to move and you're just, your feet are locked in. Get out there and do it. And then when I do it, guess what I find? Peace. Okay, so, so consider that. Food for thought. Okay. All right. I want to switch gears then pretty quickly here and go back to James because James switches gears and James picks it up then in verse nine and it's an interesting passage here I want to spend a little bit of time on this issue Um, may make some of us feel a little uncomfortable tonight um, but but that's okay God is still good and James says this in verse nine okay he's talking about trials and then he says But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Because like flower and grass, he'll pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It seems like There is a specific kind of trial going on here with these particular believers because we find in this passage, if you just glance over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you find this issue of favoritism because there's a a, a wealthy man coming to church. We'll get to that in a few weeks. If you jump over to chapter 4, you're going to see that there are, uh, there's an issue there with finding that my pleasures come from wrong motives, but I, I have a, a lustful desire to, to gain income or to gain uh, something so I can spend it on my pleasures. You see in verses 13 to 17 then, James is talking about this issue of how do I spend my money and, and do I save it or do I just give it all away? Or And then we find in verse chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, he really comes down very hard on the rich. You look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. I mean, James is dealing with an issue here 2,000 years ago that I think is prevalent in our society today, and that's wealth. And so James says that I think one of the trials you may discover in life is financially. Which is interesting because he pitches it from two different perspectives, right? He says, listen, you may be in a situation where you have no money. You are the poor of the world. And he says to the poor of the world in chapter 1, 
He says, let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Now, the question is, what's the high position? What should I glory in? And and this passage and a few other passages, I'll just cut to the chase. The high position is your glory in Christ. Your position in Christ is what you need to glory in. See, trials have a way of leveling the playing field when we're talking about finances. Because he's saying to the person that doesn't have any money, you need to remember that there will come a day when all of this will be gone. And before we get to that time, glory in the fact that you have Christ. That's where your identity is found. So glory in that. Exalt in that. The person of humble circumstances needs to exalt in that. But that's not where I want to spend most of my time tonight. Where I want to spend some of my time tonight is the other side of this. He says, but to the rich man, let him glory in his humiliation because all of this will pass away. Now, often when we read about wealth in the, in the Bible, at least I do this. What position when we're talking about wealth and poverty or rich man, poor man, what position do you and I tend to take? Which, which camp do we tend to, to, to land on when we're talking about wealth versus poverty? Be honest. Where do we tend to land? We're the poor people. Right? I, when I see this passage, I go to, oh, he's talking about me in the first part, the brother of humble circumstances. Why? Well, because I know what I make and I know people make more than me. A lot of people. So let me ask this as we get started tonight. What's rich? If you, if, if you were to define rich, he says, uh, let the rich man glory in his humiliation. What's rich in your opinion? Just raise your hands. Give me a figure. Give me a status. In our day and age, what do you consider to be rich? Because I'm going to tell you what it is, and I, but I want to hear from you first. Indoor plumbing. Indoor plumbing makes you rich. And by that account, what are we all? I hope. By that account, if you're not rich, do not invite me over. What is rich? Well, I know in Ecclesiastes says everything, everything is vanity except the pursuit of God. So I would say if, if you have Christ, you're saved or pursuing God, then you have everything. That's success. Uh, okay, I, I'll accept that. But can, can you give him the mic back? Um, but, but what is financially rich? Well, in Christ, you have everything. So, I mean. Okay, but if I make $5,000 a year, am I rich? In other words, I hear what you're saying, but but I don't want you to don't dodge the question. Someone's not rich here. Right. And so he's saying the person of poor, humble circumstances, glory in his high position, but the rich man glory in his humiliation. I want to know who's the rich man. Well, is that talking about you think that's talking about money? Yes, you do. Yeah, because James 410 says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And I think that oftentimes we humble, we exalt ourselves so we don't really give God an opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And I will add to that the reason that we don't humble ourselves before God often is because of this. 
And that's why I think in multiple places in James, James is addressing this issue, which is a financial issue. And when we get to chapter 2 and 4 and 5, we'll see this even more clearly. But what is rich? What, what is rich versus poor? Who's the rich person in here? Uh, there, yeah, somewhere. It's, just start talking. It's whoever makes more money than I do. Okay, so rich is defined as whoever makes more money than me. But in saying that then, what are you claiming about yourself? That I'm poor. That you're poor. Yeah, I took a survey with our high school students and I said, um, uh, how many students here at this high school are fake in your opinion? And they came back with 91%. I think 91% of the students here are fake. And then I said, are you fake? Well, I'm not fake. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, what's rich? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Greg, I was just going to say, how about uh, Bill Gates' status? I'm not sure how much he makes, but just Bill Gates. Bill Gates is rich. Yes. But, But we don't live in his world. What is rich? Because guys, you've got to figure this out because, because you're either going to land on the side of, I'm not rich, I'm poor. And if that's the case, then you're to exalt in glory in Christ, your identity in Christ. But if you are rich, and notice who gets more of the attention here. If you are rich, you need to heed the words of verses 7 through 9. So you need to decide in the next minute or so, which one of these camps I fall into. Yeah, uh, rich. Who's rich? Uh, you know, <laughs> I think most of us can relate more to well-off, right, Ver- versus rich. And, and when I think of that, I think of, you know, six figures, uh, you know, mid-six figures, comfortable. Now, can I just stop rich. you right there, though? Because it's yeah. funny because you said six figures and then you said mid-six figures. Well, because, you know, I started... Because, you know, 150, that's not rich. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right, but... But 540, that's rich. Well, yeah, can can be. Can be. The guy with 150, right, he's saying the guy with 540, I'm from the first part of this, right? Right, right, right. No, but you... But keep going. Yeah. 760. 760. Seven figures. Right, right. So. So, and guys, so, so w- what we have to stop doing and what we love to do is compare. And you're right. Whoever said the definition is the person who's got more money than me. They're the wealthy one. You've got to get out of that mindset. Um, because if you do that, then you're always the poor person in the scriptures. And I've got to be honest with you. The scriptures speak more to the wealthy than to the poor. Because the poor get it. When Jesus talks about follow me and give everything away and the poor get it. The poor look at those passages and say, I don't understand what the problem is here. I, I, who doesn't do that? It's the wealthy that Jesus says it's more difficult for you to enter in the kingdom of heaven. It's not the poor. It's the wealthy he says that too. But when you and I read that passage, go through the eye of a, eye, eye of a needle, uh, a camel through the eye of a needle. We look at that and say, that's not me. We look at the rich young ruler passage where he, you know, Jesus says, you know, and, and the guy walked away sad and we say, that's not me. Is it? Is it you? 
Francis Chan, a great, phenomenal preacher, uh, was preaching at his home church. He since has left it, but over in Simi Valley. Simi Valley, if you'll know, like the average income, I, I think 75 at least K. And so, so he's preaching to a rich congregation. But kind of the same thing. They don't think they're rich because there's always someone on the street that's richer than you. And so he ta- in, in this illustration, he takes two $1 bills and he's preaching, preaching, you know, and he, and he just throws them out there, crumpled up, throws them. And he said, you know what's funny? Is as I did that, not one person bent over to pick it up. Not one of you. In fact, you'd be embarrassed to bend down and pick up a crumpled dollar bill. But he said, if I did that around the world, people would be diving over the pews to get to that dollar bill. Who's the rich person here? Um, in the, uh, in the, the, the highest tax bracket right the, the the lowest income is 250 right and so maybe we, we maybe that's our our barometer 250 um, I found this interesting there was a recent poll of a thousand millionaires and they were asked this question what is well who's the rich person a thousand millionaires were asked in a survey what is what's the what's the line of wealth and they landed on 7.5 million. If you make 7.5 million or more, you need to make that to feel truly rich. And the average net worth of the thousand people, 3.5 million. So what were they saying? We're poor. Because we don't have seven and a half. You got to make twice what I make to, to feel truly rich. Three and a half million. Um, Bono from U2, uh, an inter- a reporter was interviewing him, and Bono's done a lot of work, you know, for uh, global efforts and, and clean water and whatnot. And so Bono's being interviewed by a reporter, and the reporter said, did the, when you went and visited these, these third world countries, did the people, um, could you identify with them? Because you're so far beyond wealthy, could you identify with someone who doesn't have clean water? And Bono said this, he said, um, you know what I've seen is that people in third world countries, they see no difference between you and me. He's saying this to the reporter and the reporter said, well, you know, if they saw my paycheck and saw yours, they would see a difference. And Bono said, um, if they have a roof over their head, if you have clean water, if you have three meals a day and if you have a doctor that's going to see you when you're sick, there is no difference. Whatever your income is, if you have clean water, three meals a day, roof over your head, and you've got a doctor that will see you when you're sick, you're rich. You're wealthy. Period. That's it. Are you rich? Are you the rich person in this passage? Um, if we can throw up the uh, PowerPoint here. Um, I just want to accent this, I guess, even if I could just one more time for you. Uh, these are gross figures, right? And so take this for what it's worth. Um, Simple math here, but if you make 50 grand a year, which, by the way, is the average household income, I think it's 49.5, you're bringing home 1923 uh, every paycheck. That's gross. If you make half a million a year, you're bringing home 19,000 every couple weeks. Now, again, if you're making 50 a year and you run in circles with people that make half a million and they start complaining about money, you drive home thinking, you got to be kidding me. 
If I, if I got 19 grand every, every couple weeks, gross, you know what I could do with that? Right? That's, that's our attitude. But the person that makes half a million, if they hang out with someone that makes five million, and then every couple weeks they're bringing home close to $200,000, you know what they're saying? Same thing. Rich is defined as someone who makes more than I do. Um, I'm a big, huge Celtic fan, Boston Celtics, and um, they will rise again one day. And um, so you know Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett's the big, uh, the big tall guy, and I say that because I, I can't even believe I just said that. Everyone in the NBA is tall, but he's the really big tall guy. And, uh, and in 2008 and 9, it was the peak of his salary. He since it makes half of what he makes now. But in 2008 and 9, he, he uh, did a deal with... Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let me back up here. Um, because this is where most of us live, right? I just, I just broke this down again. Raw figures here. But if you make 50 grand a year, this is what... This is an hourly... That means every hour of the day for 24 hours a day. That's not like eight hours a day, okay? So, so teachers make more than five bucks an hour. But every hour of the day, you would make five bucks. Every day, you'd make 136 times, you know, this is 12 months a year, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so with that in mind, I compared that to when Kevin Garnett in 2008, when he made $24.5 million, this is what he did. Now, again, the NBA season's about eight months long. And so for, you know, this is throughout the whole year. Every couple weeks, he's getting half a million dollars. Whether he's injured, whether he's, you know, playing good, whether he fouls out, he gets that money regardless. And so I even broke it down, I don't know if you can see it, but I even broke it down to the minute, it makes 51 bucks a minute. That's every minute of every day for the year. Well, we can, you can hold your breath for a minute. And when you do that, just know he made 50 bucks. Every hour he makes three grand. So I thought, well, who's the richest guy, right? And so I couldn't do this without doing Bill Gates. And so Bill Gates, give or take, depending on how the stocks are doing, will make about $8 billion a year. And so again, if you just do raw figures and break it down, now again, if you're a Mac fan or an Apple fan, the monthly figure means nothing, okay? Do not read into that. Um, but, but every minute, I don't know if you can see it, the board's in the way, every minute he makes $15,220, give or take. Hold your breath for a minute and he makes $15,000. Um, Every day, and again, raw figures, but every day he makes, if he wanted to, $21 million. Um, so we can say this safely. He's rich. Um, but guys, rich is... I had the opportunity... Um, I had the opportunity to play at a, a country club um, this past weekend up in Payson. That's rich. When we're the only ones on the golf course and the golf course is immaculate, we made the turn at the ninth hole after ninth hole. There was actually a lady in the, in the, the, the food stand waiting for us. And I'm not kidding when I say this. We were literally the only foursome on the course. And they had a lady out there waiting for us just to, to give us food. Um, I had a chance to play up at Troon Country Club a few years ago because of someone won an auction or whatever invited me up there. It's a different lifestyle. It's just different, right? And so I remember one weekend I went camping in Greer, the whole tent thing and, you know, and, and our pop-up trailer thing. And, 
it roughed it, and then that same weekend, like Friday, Saturday, came home Saturday and went up to a hotel in Scottsdale for like a staycation and, and lived well. Is it the fact that I can afford to stay in a nice hotel, does that make me rich? What, what defines wealth? And I guess I just want to encourage us all as we move on with this passage is to understand that I think, I agree with, if you've got running water, if you've got indoor plumbing, you need to really think about whether you're wealthy or not. I'm going to argue that when the scriptures say things to the wealthy, we need to pay attention to that. And so what the scriptures say to the wealthy is you do not get used to this lifestyle. Uh, in fact, jump, just drop back over to Proverbs. Let me just highlight a, a one passage in Proverbs because I, I really want us to understand this concept that money comes and money goes. And when we hold on too tightly, we're going to have issues. Proverbs chapter 23. Let's go to Proverbs 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Look at verse, uh, look at verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Uh, Solomon again says this. He says, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. For when you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings. Okay? So he's saying, cease from wealth. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. Um, for wealth certainly makes its wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Okay? And so again, we have this passage explaining to us that wealth is fleeting. It comes and it goes. Paul said, I've experienced both sides of life. And many of us can relate to that. I've had several conversations with people recently that have told me about their financial highs and their financial lows. That comes and goes. And I think that's a good reminder to us that it does come and go. And yet, when we are in that position of blessing from God, when you have more money or some money or you've got things saved up, James comes back to you and to me. He says, be careful. Be careful. It, rather than boast in what you have, you should glory in your humiliation before God. Do not hold on to your wealth tightly. Uh, flip over to chapter uh, to Luke then. In You know what? Actually, stay in Proverbs just for one second because I don't want to flip back and forth. Let's go to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. And let's look at verse 16. Proverbs 15, verse 16. Solomon says again in Proverbs 15, verse 16, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Okay, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Um, I like, uh, let's see, is it in that passage? Uh, no, it's okay, we're getting to it. Uh, and then two, two, uh, three chapters over, verse chapter 10, Proverbs chapter 10, and let's look at verse 22, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. And this is really what I want us to understand about wealth, I guess. Proverbs 10, 22, Solomon says this, It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. 
and he adds no sorrow to it. See, what makes you rich? What makes a rich life? It's the blessing of God. That's what makes your life rich. It's not how many zeros you've got behind your name. It's, it's the blessing of God in your life. But when we get a few shekels in our account, it really changes our attitude. It changes our mindset. I remember about, oh, 15, 16 years ago, there was a knock on my door and I opened the door and I got served papers. I was, I've, never, I've never been sued in my life and I, was, I didn't know what was going on. Out of Hollywood. Knock, knock, knock. Are you Greg Tonkinson? Yes. Here you go. I've been served. I'm getting sued. I looked at it and it was a, it was a real estate deal. We had bought a condominium and uh, we had, I'm selling a, our townhouse and buying another house and selling the townhouse. Someone made an offer and we were away, I think in Greer or somewhere, and we got a call from our real estate agent. House is going to sell. Should we take the offer? And we said, why don't we counter? Well, when, when we were countering, someone came with a better offer and he took the better offer and didn't get the, give the people who count, we countered with a chance to respond. So they sued us. They didn't sue him. They sued me. And long story short, they were suing us for like $40,000, which at the time, uh, two newlywed, a couple, newlywed couple, no kids, she's in college, I'm in seminary, we're getting sued for $40,000, it might as well have been $40 million, because I don't have $40. And you want to talk about realizing how quickly money can come and go. I called my lawyer friend and I said, really, what are we dealing with here? Seriously, like, what are we dealing with here? And he said, I'll shoot straight with you, Greg. Um, we're looking at getting you out of this somewhere between losing twenty-five and 40000 And after crying and weeping, I said, um, what if I don't have that? And he said, well, then, you know, we'll garnish wages. And, and so I did what every good Christian should do. Um, I called my real estate agent and said, guess who's getting sued? And he said, who? And I said, I'm getting sued because of, you know, this. And he said, man, I feel really bad. And I said, well, guess who I'm suing? <laughs> so now we had a three-way suit going on. Long story short, God totally provided. Not only did we get out of the suit, um, but it didn't cost us a dime. It was, it was an ama- a long story. I don't have time to explain it. But it was in that moment, guys, where I realized money can come and money can go. I'm at this place, this unbelievable place up in Payson this weekend. This house is to die for. And the guy's telling me, I am so far under in this thing because of the market. I bought when the market was high and now it's crashed and I can't get out from this. I'm going to be buried in this house because I can't get out from under it. Money comes and money goes. I didn't feel too bad for him when he said he had to sell his plane. I thought, all right, well, who's rich? Is he rich because he can afford a membership up in Payson? Am I rich because I can drive a minivan? I mean, who's rich? And James comes back and throughout the Proverbs, we see this time and time again that I think that you and I are the ones he's talking about. And so he says back in verse 9 of James, he says, Let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like the flower and grass, it's going to pass away. Do you and I realize that? Do we, do we settle on that? Are we okay with that? Because if we are, then we're okay with the idea that the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in his midst of his pursuits will fade away. Remember in Luke chapter 12, there's this great passage, I believe it's Luke 12, where Jesus is talking about the guy who 
who finds wealth in, uh, in, in, in his business. And so he just adds to it and adds to it and adds to it. And he builds bigger and bigger and bigger. And when he finally builds bigger, he sits back and he says, now tonight I will eat, drink, and be merry because I've done all of this. And remember what the passage says? What does God tell him what is due that night? Do you, does anyone remember? His life. Guy works and works and works and works and amasses a fortune and then sits back and says, look it, I'm going to revel in my fortune, I'm going to glory in my fortune. And God says, well, you better enjoy it because the clock is ticking. And when the bell doth toll midnight or what, you know, you're done. So get, take a picture because it's gone at midnight. Your life is required. I think the scripture says his very life is required that night. It comes and it goes. Can, can we not pursue wealth? Um, let me rephrase that. Can you be a rich Christian? And let's just define rich as like really super rich, like wealthy, like, like we all know what that means. Yes, you can. Obviously you can. The idea though is if you're going to do that, do it humbly. Glory in your humiliation. When God blesses you financially, glory in the humiliation because glory in the fact that it's going to go someday. In other words, hold on to it loosely. Give it away while you can. Uh, Part of Leanne's passing um, afforded me some finances because of insurance and blah, blah, blah. Not much, but a little. More than I've had in the past. And guys, I'm here to tell you, when you give your money away, your heart is full. Your heart is full of joy. There is nothing like putting a smile on someone else's face who's in need of a couple of bucks. And we're not talking about millions of dollars here. We're just talking about buying someone dinner or, or, you know, paying someone's rent. And if you've got it, I'm saying give it. Because when you give it, you can read this passage and understand it. And you're okay with it. Yeah, it passes away. It comes and goes. And I have some now and I gave it away. And so when James says it's going to come and go like, like a, a, a fire with a, a sun rises with a scorching wind and withers like grass, I get that. And if I die with a bunch of money in my bank account, maybe I didn't do that great of a job of giving it away. I'm not saying everyone has to die poor. But I am saying everyone has to give an account. So if you die with a big fortune, God's going to ask you a couple questions and they may go like this. What did you do with that? What, what was your plan? And, and, and I hope we have a good answer. I hope I have a good answer. You got a couple thousand dollars in a savings account? Have a good answer for God as to what you were planning on doing with it. Uh, phenomenal discussion that we just don't have time for tonight about retirement. Phenomenal. Because one of the guys on this trip I was on his, his, his absolute desire right now is to retire and move up there and just kind of live the life. And I'm just, I'm asking the question, is that what we're called to do? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe God can use him up there, that's fine. But, but is that our motivation, right? Should you pursue wealth? And James is saying here, just, just be understanding to the rich people, that you are to glory and your humiliation. Okay, one more thing tonight, and then we're going to call it a night. Um, drop down now to verse 13. James says, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, 
and he himself does not tempt anyone. Let no one say when he's tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. It's an interesting statement. And do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. Right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Right? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us. And whenever you get to that point, if you're ever doing it in a group, just be quiet because everyone's got different versions at that point. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those trespasses. Forgive us our sins. We forgive, those sins. We forgive us our debts. And we forgive those, who, you know. So just drop out and watch the mass confusion take place. But then everyone picks it up on and lead us what? And then James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not, what? Tempt anyone. So as I was thinking about that, it begged the question, obviously, why do I pray that then? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Any thoughts on that? But Job, that Job was led into temptation or, or he allowed Job to be tempted or tested or tried. Sure. Do you remember maybe even a more famous passage? Who else was tested by God? Jesus led into the wilderness. Uh, Peter. Yeah, I'm, I'm going all, even all the way back to Genesis. Abraham. How many of you have sons or daughters, right? God says to Abraham, go up on the mount and sacrifice Isaac. Slay him. Was God tempting Abraham? No, we say he's what? He's testing him. It's an interesting thing because skeptics of the Christian faith will say, well, you're just playing semantics. Because, and they're right, because the word in Hebrew for tempt and test is, guess what? Same word. Um, and even in the New Testament, you can use pretty much tempt and test interchangeably. And I think this is what James is meaning here. Maybe he is, uh, I'll throw this out here. That the, the desire of God is to never bring us down a path where evil is going to be the end result, right? Okay, so the desire of God is to never bring you down a path where evil is going to be the end result. We'll get into the progression of sin in just a moment, but God's desire often is to bring you down a path of testing, of trying, so that your faith can be refined, so that your faith can be um, tested, so that you will be able to endure and, and be made complete. Um, I like when, when someone actually gave me this um, pattern. See if this works for you. Trials in the scriptures can come from God. And the purpose is to mature us. Um, trials often are external, as we mentioned, and God can be the source of those trials. He doesn't have to be, but he can be. Um, 
But the difference is, is that temptations, the purpose of temptations or the end result might be to kill us, spiritually speaking. Um, sin is, is the, the culprit in temptations, and often we can attribute our temptations all the way back to Satan himself, okay? And so I want to make a distinguishment here between trials and temptations because James does that here. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, which is, which is what we're talking about here in temptations. I like the way the message version puts it. Listen to this. Don't let anyone under, starting in verse 13, don't let anyone under pressure to give into evil say God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give into evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare up of our own lust. Verse 15 in the message, lust gets pregnant and has a baby and that baby is sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. I like that. I like the way Eugene Peterson phrased that. Um, maybe for some of you who can remember back in the day, uh, did anyone ever read um, This Present Darkness, uh, that series? Um, yeah, it was Frank Peretti, I believe, and uh, the, the author. And it was a fiction, basically a fiction series about um, uh, spiritual darkness and spiritual forces coming upon a town. And the one thing that was mentioned in the book was that demons were often used to trip people up. And, but what happened as a result of that book and, and the series was that Christians in real life were reading a fiction book. And then when they were enticed to sin and gave into temptation, guess who they would blame? A demon or Satan. Right. And so I give into this temptation like I don't, you know, um, you know, I'm dating a girl or whatever. And I end up sleeping with her. Well, I didn't I didn't you know, I gave in, but it's his fault. It's the demon's fault. It's the demon of lust. It's his fault. Well, I, you know, I didn't mean to get, you know, just drunk every night for the past month. It's the demon of alcohol. It's their fault. And we, what we did was we deflected our own uh, responsibilities onto demons and, and Satan himself. And if that's the case, guys, then when you and I pass away, there is no need for judgment, the beam of seat. There's no need for that. Because to every sin, we can go to God and say, well, yeah, I was tempted by Satan. I gave in. It's his fault. I claim no responsibility. But James clearly says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But when each one is tempted, he is carried away by enticed by his own lust. James wants to distinguish between a trial that's happening to me externally, relationships, health, finances, and a temptation that I give into that has caused problems in my life. Can I attribute the trial that God wants to test me or try me or prove in me that something you know I need to work on? Yeah, absolutely I can. When God brought Abraham to a point of sacrificing Isaac... God was trying to demonstrate to Abraham, I need you to trust me fully. And how, how, how much more trust does someone need to, than, to, than to put a knife to their child's throat? And God said, stop, right? And he, and he sacrificed a, a lamb instead. But 
God said, You've got, you got it. Yeah, I believe you. I don't need to test you in faith anymore. You're going to be the father of many nations, Abraham. But I need to know you're on board. That's testing. Can Abraham attribute that to God? Absolutely. Is there a result that's going to benefit Abraham? Absolutely. See, that's different than David standing on the balcony, looking out, lusting after Bathsheba, being enticed by his own sin, being entangled by his own sin, bringing her into his room, sleeping with her, getting her pregnant, starting to reel from all the, all the thoughts of losing the kingdom. So he tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife. That doesn't work. And so Uriah goes back out on the front line and David sends a messenger out to kill Uriah and put him on the front lines. I mean, he put him on the front lines and Uriah dies and David thinks I'm in the clear. Is David giving it? This is what's happening to David right now. This is, David can't go to God and say, boy, you're really trying me throughout this. But rather, David can fall on his face and repent and say, God, I'm so sorry. I am giving in to my own lusts. And I want to make that clear tonight. That whatever is going on in your life and my life, we need to decide, is it a trial? Test of faith, endurance, perseverance, and God, thank you for making me a better person. Or is it sin? Is it a temptation that I'm giving into, which is going to lead to death? So, here's the progression. This is faith because of a trial, which leads to patience, which leads to maturity, right? That's what we find in verses 1 through 4, or maybe 2 through 4. The second option here is desires... Leads to sin. I'm sorry. Desire leads to temptation. Or because of the temptation, I give in to my desires. That leads to sin and that leads to death. Spiritually speaking, that leads to death. Okay? And so James wants to clarify, you may be experiencing a bad time in your life right now. But but figure out, is it a trial or is it a temptation? Because the end result... Once you figure out which path you're on, it's going to be radically different. If it's a temptation that's causing your desires to sin, it's going to lead here, not to maturity. Please don't buy the lie that if I'm, if I'm wallowing around in my sin because I'm giving into this temptation, it's going to lead to maturity. It's not. It's going to lead to death. And, and I keep saying spiritual death, but guys, let's just be honest. Are there some sins that you and I can commit that will lead to physical death? Please don't put that past your your sin nature. Of course there is. If you're experiencing a trial, recognize it as from God or possibly from God. Your faith is built. It gives you patience and maturity. Okay? Who's going to get the credit, in other words, James wants to know. And if you're going through a temptation where you're giving into your sin, do not assign that to God but rather deal with it by repentance and confession. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Just no, we got to wrap it up. So, yeah, last question. We, we leave the subject of wealth. Oh, yes. I'd just like to share something with you. I witnessed personally people that were truly rich in Jesus Christ. I had the privilege of visiting a tri- two tribes in Vietnam during the Vietnam conflict. 
They were driven out of the highlands by the Viet Cong, were in the lowlands. The first thing they did, they built a mud church. They had a parachute cover that was given to them by the military, U.S. military. And they were supported by the U.S. military. I toured this village, and the pastor asked me if I would come to his house and share my testimony. And I did, and there were people leaning in the windows and everything. He introduced me to a man whose five brothers were beheaded because he would not renounce his faith in Christ. Hmm. I looked at these people. I shared my testimony. When I was done, the pastor said to me, I want you to write your name and your wife and your kids because we want to pray for you. Hmm. And I thought, these people have nothing, yeah. absolutely nothing, except the greatest faith in Christ that I have witnessed. Yeah. And so they took my name and they prayed for me. And I thought, that is true wealth in yeah. Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. They're glorying in their exaltation in Christ. Uh, let the humble do that. Let the poor, let the rich glory in their humiliation. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get out of here. I will see you in three weeks. Father, thanks for tonight. Uh, God, I pray that maybe some of us are wrestling through a trial. May we, may we clearly understand that that trial is meant to bring us to a state of maturity. But God, maybe some of us tonight are struggling with a sin. And that clearly is meant to lead us to death. Make, Holy Spirit, make the distinguishment in, in each of our lives, whatever the issue may be. For some of us tonight, wealth really is our issue. We're not going to admit it to our friends or to even here at the mine. But, but we know that we're struggling financially by um, our attitude towards our money. We're holding on way too tightly. And as this uh, story that was just mentioned clearly tells us that our, our true wealth is found in our identity in you and our relationship with you. And so, God, maybe for some of us, we need to start giving some of our money away. Father, for those that are struggling financially, truly struggling, not because of debt, but unexpected loss of finances, loss of a job, uh, injury at work, salaries cut in half, that's a trial. Teach us during that time, Father, to wholly depend on you. I want to see uh, myself, I want to see people in this room, Father, come back in a few weeks. Um, more mature in Christ because we're dealing with our trials the way you want us to, seeking wisdom and living by faith. We'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you in a couple weeks.